Hello, hello! You're listening to The Spodcast. This is episode 5. I'm Josh Veal, and we have a great show for you today. But you don't have to take my word for it, because I'm probably lying. You can just listen to the cool people who are with me here as well, such as Chris Franklin. Yeah, I'm a cool people, I guess. By, by this show standards. Also here with me cool, is uh, people. Glitch. A, how do you know it's going to be a good show? You haven't recorded it yet. B, why does Chris get his first name, but I get called Glitch? I, I, uh, I'm protesting this. This, I'm, I'm because until this about four We're days up. ago, nobody knew who your name was We're on strike. or what your name was. That's a perfect time to start calling me by my actual name, so everyone can learn that instead of the name I made when okay. I was 11. I'm really embarrassed about. It. <laughs> Joining me today as well is Steve Melvin. Hi. Steve, Me- Stephen Melvin. Yeah, exactly. Stephen Melvin. Oh, God. He doesn't even have the same last name as me. He used to be a chartered Thank accountant, goodness. but unfortunately he developed a heart condition, and his doctors thought that, that was too fast-paced a lifestyle for him. So ever since then, he's been <laughs> testing fleece blankets uh, for a large company in the Midwest. The soft ones are my favorites. And also here with us is Alex. Catchphrase. That's all I got. Uh, did, did you intro? Did you intro Rutzkorn? That's fine. It's okay. No, I think but we should he do a show. Interjected, so he needs no introduction. He's he's Rutzkorn. <laughs> yeah, he is the Rutzkorn. And now the man who needs no introduction, which I've I've been informed is actually supposed to be pronounced Rutzkorn, but that makes me think of root beer. Yeah, yeah, it is, and I am, of course, a stickler about the pronunciation of my fake name that I made up. Yeah, whatever you say, Tolkien. We're in a bit of an unusual position here on the Spodcast right now, because I'm sure uh, everybody is waiting to hear us talk about E3. Unfortunately, as we are recording this on Saturday evening, uh, we've only seen one of the press conferences, and it wasn't very good. And you don't need us to tell you that about the EA press conference. Uh, I'm going to challenge this premise here. Is everyone really waiting to hear what we think about E3? We'll be like, yeah, that cost a lot of money. Uh, There were some video games. The the gameplay demos look good, except for the parts where they looked really dorky and bad. Uh... And yeah, video games are probably all going to be terrible for the next 20 years. You made a lot of presumptions right off the bat, Josh. I, th- I don't know where you're going with this, but I'm not okay we with the direction. A hundred plus people tuning into our streams all the time when we do this. I mean, that's a hundred plus bit... people who want to hear us talk about E3, I guess. I mean, how many of those people actually want to hear us talk about E3? I'm pretty sure everyone tunes in to hear my beautiful, voluptuous voice. You weren't even there. Voice. You were literally not there today. <laughs> the only adjective I could think of. The only part you were there for was when you beeped me with Steam notifications and never got mad. Best part of the show. It, Best part of the show. Is, is, is that a comments problem? per second. I'm sorry, I'm stuck on this, Steven. Is that a problem for you very often, where you're called upon to think of an adjective and the only one that leaps to mind is voluptuous? <laughs> Um, can I have a, can I have some ice cream, please? What flavor? Uh, voluptuous, please. <laughs> Thank you, mom. That was a voluptuous I mean, casserole. Is is that? Isn't the flavor of ice cream a noun? The ice cream would taste voluptuous. Yeah, yeah. A voluptuous vanilla. You can argue Ooh, that chocolate I like ice that. cream. 
uh, the, the chocolate is the adjective, possibly. That was a good bit. Yeah, I think so, we learned uh, something today. So, so moving on voluptuously, uh, what were you saying, Josh? Well, um, I actually, there was one thing that was pointed out to me about the EA conference um, that I didn't think of at the time, which is that they also had no Dragon Age, which was interesting. Not that I think anyone is really clamoring for more Dragon Age right now either, but that wasn't even mentioned at the conference. So, <sighs> Dragon Age is dead. They're gonna they're gonna try to make a third person action I game think... out of Dragon Age at some point oh, with milder no. elements, but it's still... it's dead. I think they're still working on it though. Like there there is a project for Dragon Age, but I guess it's like, like a couple years out right now, which would explain why it's not on E3. It. Although it's not like they had a whole lot else to show. <laughs> They're working on it, and, they, and then they released Mass Effect Andromeda. Mass Effect Andromeda, yes. You've all heard of that game, of course. Named after Andromeda, one of the most famous galaxies that exists. I thought we were going to talk about the television show. That's what I was thinking. The most famous television show. Yeah, the by far the greatest sci-fi franchise of all time, uh, Gene Roddenberry's other thing, Andromeda. <laughs> the most the most popular Gene Roddenberry show. Exactly. There's there's really nothing else that I think about when I think about Gene Roddenberry than Andromeda. Uh, so let's leave E3 aside for the moment, and we'll come back to it next week, maybe, probably. Actually, the, the rest of my my cast here are not particularly interested in talking about E3 on a podcast for some reason, but uh, we'll probably. End up talking you never about asked it. me. Well, I don't ask you anything. I didn't see it, but maybe I want to talk about it. Maybe I want to say EA sucks. I mean, everyone already knows that, but I want to be on record for saying it. I, Steve, whatever my name, Steve Voluptuous, uh, on record for saying EA sucks. No, that's, we call you Voluptuous Steve. So let's change gears here a bit. Um, everybody remembers the uh, homework that Steve Voluptuous gave me uh, two weeks ago, and then skipped out on the Again, show last week with the week. every the everyone thing. Does everyone remember this? What if they missed that episode? This is part of the bit where I intro it. I'm going to talk yeah, about you can't the fact go that you gave me around everyone. see Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and then I did it literally just under time, and you weren't there. Somebody reminded me it was my anniversary. It was you. Yeah, because you I forgot. Could've, I could have not remembered you that. you got married like three weeks from now. <laughs> it, it, was, it, was, it was a month and three weeks. It was the 25th, not the 5th. Uh, and it was July, so... Like, all of that is wrong. I don't know how you got July in your head. Uh, planning <sighs> wedding sucks. Don't do it. Anyway, so we're here now, and I saw Guardians of the Galaxy 2, and Steve is here too. So let's talk about Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Uh, full-on spoilers. Wait, this Chris, Alex, segment have is you gonna seen have spoilers this movie? In it? Yes. Yeah, I forget about it, though, because it's been so long. I've been I've been waiting. Now I forget. <laughs> I've also seen it. Wow, we all saw a movie so, we're talking about. Jiminy yeah. fucking crickets. Yeah, it's really weird. This has never happened before. Aside from, like, Star all right, Wars, so I you, guess. You know the drill. Uh, click on Josh's no, face to skip no, ahead. To no, the point where I'm canceling no this bit. All right. All right. Podcast canceled. Why? Thanks, everybody. Someday, 
put it up there. You finally made the move to YouTube. You can finally click on Josh's face. Okay, All he has so to do is I, annotate a I picture really of his face. I really wanted to do a like bit where like a very badly drawn like imitation of my face gets put up That's on not the what screen. The people want. Josh Everyone wants Okay, so the in-screen features for YouTube, you can't do in-screen stuff and also have annotations. They don't let you. It's one or the other. And since the in-screen stuff is useful and annotations are, like, never useful, like, I don't don't have those two together. So I I haven't... I can't do annotations. Okay. So the in-screen uh, stuff, where it pops up with like video uh, thumbnails I, and like the I, Patreon I didn't say link I wanted and stuff. To become unlost. I don't think that any. I think I can say resoundingly, nobody wants to hear about this without I'm any. I just hyperbole. decided that this discussion needs to be started by somebody whose brother is not currently in this vent chat. So I'm taking over. <laughs> Guardians of the Galaxy Two is the sequel to the film Guardians of the Galaxy. <laughs> Which is Marvel's attempt to add a lot of weird stuff while still retaining a very. certain amount of approachability in their Marvel Cinematic Universe. Guardians of the Galaxy 2, very much anticipated because it, the first movie really caught everybody by surprise and did a lot of interesting things and had a lot of great shticks, like the fact that it sort of connected uh, the main character to Earth, despite like the weird surroundings by playing all these oldies hits. And then everyone's like, well, okay, but it looks like the next one they're going to do the same thing over again. Are they going to pull it off? Are they going to turn this into their very own, like, self-contained sci-fi pulp franchise where they could do a different thing each film without necessarily tying it to some sort of grand cosmic, like, Marvel master plan? Uh, Oh, don't be ridiculous. (laughs) I would actually say they pulled it off. I think that the sequel to Guardians of the Galaxy 2 retained the elements that made the original good uh, was clearly a sequel like, it definitely felt like just, oh, this is another thing that happens. But it also feels like the kind of sequel you don't really get a lot of these days, where they took the same characters, they gave all of them arcs that changed them a little bit since the last movie. Uh, they had a completely new plot line that sort of advanced uh, the greater story of this world without necessarily, without necessarily being like, obviously, this has to happen so the next 80 movies can happen. And I thought it was a really good movie. So, Melvin. <laughs> Yeah, um, so I I like the point you made that I I also kind of agree that they didn't try to shoehorn things in too much. I mean, obviously you have the uh, the tie-in with Thanos and his daughters, you know, and all that. Um, but like, really, they didn't like force anything that's like this is going to be important later. So come watch all of our other films, uh, which was refreshing because that's so very Marvel to do uh, to just force in things that like even the last film had the infinity stone which was i get that that's what they're they're using in all their films to tie them together but even then it's like do we really need that in guardians of the galaxy i didn't think we did and so they pulled that off well what they didn't pull off well is i thought that the comedy was really stale uh and misplaced uh whereas it was charming in the first one and the second one they didn't innovate at all and they kind of became almost too self-aware for instance there's that scene where they're on the planet and uh peter quill is literally just arguing in old sitcoms and i'm like this it was just it took me completely out of the movie but that's besides the point the the real point of contention i have with the film and i'm gonna drop a bombshell here is and if you haven't seen the film don't don't listen to me now because this is a bit of big spoilers the scene at the end with yondu dying and the funeral and everything was so touching or at least it would have been 
if I didn't understand why he died. And in case you didn't catch it, the reason why he died was there was only a certain amount of spacesuits. Why was there only a certain amount of spacesuits? Because Drax, in the beginning of the fucking movie, says, I don't want to wear one because it chafes my nipples. Yondu dies because nipples could have gotten chafed. And nobody says anything about it. They just brush over that. If my adopted father died because my friend didn't want to wear something that chafed his nipples, I'd be pretty pissed about that. But no, we're just going to brush that, by the fact. Isn't that why they have one? Isn't that why they have what? A, a suit. Why, How are you you're, tracing you're, the supplies of the wait, spaceship from the beginning to the end? Here's the, the, the yeah. suits Drax, with the, the jetpacks. Those are different things. Yes. Uh, either, either either way, Drax didn't have the jetpack or the thing, uh, so they couldn't go out into space. They only had the certain amount of equipment because Drax didn't have the other equipment. I, I was watching the film like uh, the same way I watched, Drax watched the last one. Drax didn't bring his initially to the final encounter, you mean. Right, right, which is established in the very opening scene when he's like, I don't like wearing these things, they chafe my nipples. If this had been a and d campaign, I would have been pissed at whoever was playing Drax. Right, by, but by that logic, Yondu just arrived from his own ship. Why didn't he bring his own? If we're expecting Drax to wear one at all times, why wouldn't Yondu be wearing one at all times? The whole film is built around, uh, or at least the, the beginning parts of the premise are built around, you all are doing stupid things, and this is why we're fighting, because because Drax is, is doing this stupid thing that could get him into danger, or, or because uh, the fox is... Um, is stealing batteries. Why does he need to steal batteries? And so the whole growth of the film, to me, is supposed to be they get their shit together, but they don't get their shit together and somebody dies because you don't have your equipment that you need on your ship. But that well, classic, like, like the Yondu thing is just the classic, the like, yeah, it's just the classic, like, father sacrifice to let the son grow and continue on hero's journey, right? Like, Yondu's like a bad that? dude. And so, well, like, he's it, like, I need to do this because I can't do anything else except die. Right. right. That's Did anyone aside from me writing. think that Yond, like, for a while in the middle of the movie, that Yondu just got fucking murdered by Nebula? Wait, what? What? When? Did, like, when he gets shot, did, um, and oh, no, the, no, the mutant villains, oh, like. Oh, right, right. Like, when I, they I was thinking, like, oh, is he off. just dead? No. That would have been unceremonious but but they I establish he's alive in like the next scene i we think the, they, let, they let it hang but that's tension josh that's what you call tension you're supposed to wonder oh no is yondu dead or not and feel like a sense of suspense and want to see what happens next which is going to carry over as you get lost into the next part it's the meanwhile on the ranch form of storytelling but yeah the the point i'm trying to make is that um like even if you can like explain away all of the the like problems it still feels to me like they were trying to shoehorn in the 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 comedy too much like the pac-man scene or the playing catch scene i can't be the, the only one who was sitting there was being a little like, over the top I yeah think. that was a little cringe <sighs> especially because it just also, reminded me of pixels yeah yeah that that's not a good, not a good to, parallel to reference you know one intentionally that um but like like also, the plot's slow, I thought. Like, they literally, what, what happens in the movie? They start out in one place, and then they crash, and then they spend the rest of the time on Peter Quill's dad. And I like being able to yeah, say that sentence. 
it does have an interesting like I'm not sure it's his an issue, but an interesting quirk where like, at least for the first half of the movie, you really have no idea who the villain's gonna be. Yeah. It's it's a structural problem. Really? Um I mean yeah, you you know from the trailer and also you know oh. who Ego is. You, you know you know Yeah, I was gonna, gonna say I didn't they, they pay attention it, to either of those, so Right. It wasn't a strong villain. Even then, there there's a structural problem wherein you have Sort of a, a strong action-based opening, and then about the middle third to two-thirds of the film are very much introspection and character-based development and internal arcs about finding yourself and finding your dad and finding who you are and, and it was very identifying with someone else. Um, too, like all the characters were talking to one other character. There was never there. Were, there was very rarely groups of people talking. It was all everyone's specific little tiny stories. It felt almost Star Trek in structure, actually, with how much time the the thing spent on just talking and on introspection. That's not too far off. And that's not a bad thing, like, to have that kind of character dynamics. In fact, it, it probably... It probably did more of that than any of the new Star Trek films, except maybe the latest one. Yeah, they were pretty much stuck on that planet, that whole film. But, uh... Also, um, did I? I don't know about anybody else, but I thought the whole Peter Quill's dad being a planet thing was really um, weird, like in an uninteresting way. I I didn't find that to be a very appealing uh, reveal. I don't know. It just seems too comic booky, and maybe that's just because I'm not a comic book fan. Like I really uh, am not big on comics, so I'm going to see a movie, not a comic book. And so there might be that disconnect. As, as someone who reads a lot of comic books, I was impressed with how well they managed to make Ego not seem ridiculous. Yeah. Because Ego would have been very easy to make ridiculous. I actually really like that. I, I think it worked perfectly because here is Peter, like, wondering, like, who could my dad be? And it turns out that his dad is the most impressive thing possible. His dad is like a kind of a god. And that, like, it, it really kind of directly addresses kind of this amorphous image of his father, as in his father is an amorphous thing. His father is this amorphous, powerful, paternal thing, like, life-giving thing uh, that is just every kind of, uh, every question and every kind of feeling he's had about his dad. It literally represents that, and then it contrasts that with, well, yeah, but compare that to the person who is actually a father to him. Right, because it plays off the whole idea that, that his vision for his dad was this really powerful, really cool guy, and then his, his actual dad was basically the guy who took pride in the fact that he didn't need him. So, kind of a big difference. And there's other father figures in the movie, too, right? Like, if we think about Thanos and his yeah. relationship with Bluehead Lady, forget her name, and then like, even Drax goes a little bit into it, right? Bluehead Lady, I like it. yeah. Does so there's he... like a lot. Of... That's a good. I I thought that relationship was more on the on the like evenness, I guess, between him and Mantis. Oh, I mean, doesn't he talk about his daughter though? Uh, yeah, I guess that's true. And and yeah. Huh. I didn't think about that. It's not what a I... good through line, though, because if you think about Thanos in comparison with Ego, then there's all, like, 
I don't know what's worse. There's two totally different things going on there, and I like there's not enough time to like develop all that stuff. But everyone was having daddy issues. Well, even even Yondu to Kragen, uh, what's his name? Uh, Sean Gunn's character. Yeah, I mean, it's just a general theme of family being something that is like family is not something you are; it's something you do. Yeah. I mean, even that that's even the case with uh, Nebula and Gamora. You know, they're biologically sisters, but they don't. It's very clear that they're not sisters until they choose to be. I don't think they are biologically sisters. I think they both were taken. Oh, yeah. You know, OK, that that's true. Well, OK, actually, that even works better. I mean, like they, they're put in a position of being, quote unquote, sisters, but they're not sisters. They're people who keep attacking each other, just happen to know each other really well. And then at some point they make a decision that they've got no one else and that they're going to be sisters to one another. And, like, that that demonstrates as well as anything that that's, that's what it's about. Uh, also, the Ravagers, especially at the end when they come through for uh, Yondu. Yeah. That is true. Yeah. Was anyone else, like, put off by the Stallone thing? Like, the, that I cameo? Was, was it? What you- uh, yeah, it was a little weird. It it were it paid off. the The end where they come back is awesome, but it's weird putting a name big name actor of that much import into that role, and then having him show up like at the very beginning, and then in one other scene, and then not at all. But but then the payoff is worth it. But you keep waiting for him to come back because like, why did you get Sylvester Stallone in this movie and not introduce him? What's going on? And then they pay it off. I did like but, the the David Hasselhoff cameo. As uh, as somebody who doesn't know, I assume that that uh, bit at the end with the other uh, Ravagers was a reference to another movie where Sylvester Stallone... The original Guardians together. of the Galaxy. Well, it was a reference to the original Guardians of the Galaxy. Original Guardians of the Galaxy. See, I'm learning. Yeah, the Guardians of the Galaxy they put in the movie were actually are actually like... Aren't they like less than 10 years old in terms of like... Like the, like the comic title itself is... Like well, it dates back to the com- cosmic era in the seventies, I think. But like the the actual team with Rocket Raccoon and Star Lord and Drax yeah. and Gamora and a few other people that didn't make the cut is actually much more recent. Yeah, it's I want to say two thousand eight ish. It's it's from uh, what was the stupid name of the series? I can't remember the run, but yeah. Isn't Peter Quill not even Star Lord anymore? In he is again. Book he, I, I want to say Kitty Pride was for a while, but he is again in the Guardians Grounded. Um, I think that's after Secret Wars undid the entire thing. Um, but for a while, I think Kitty Pride was Star Lord. But now it's now it's uh, Kitty Pride gets Quill to again. be everybody. Eh. And what I'm nervous about with what Steve mentioned is that they haven't integrated Guardians into the universe a lot yet, but I'm in thinking inevitably they're going to connect it to like Captain Marvel or something like that. Yeah, I'm that would make sense. Like expecting they're going to show up in an Avengers movie or something. They, they are. They're going to show up in com- Infinity War the next one, yeah. Oh, really? That's confirmed. Yeah, didn't you guys uh, see the yeah. the teaser or whatever that has that uh, concept art of Rocket Raccoon shooting a gun next to Thor without his hammer? Well, isn't it in that teaser trailer that that Peter Quill is in? Isn't he in the the behind the scenes trailer thing that yes. they released? I'm... It's, it's There's just way uh, too many trailers. 
it, it's it's a behind the scenes thing that basically weirdly announced the beginning of production, which was it's not a teaser trailer because there's nothing shot yet. It's literally we have a set with a bunch of green behind it, and here's Tony Stark and uh, Tom Holland as Spider Man and. Uh, Chris Pratt as Star-Lord, and they're all on the same set. Isn't this movie going to be awesome? And that's all they have, is just, like, those three actors. Huh. Um, but, yeah, they're trying to hype you up by showing you that we're getting the band back together. and having Yeah, the that's not the first meet. time they've done that. Is it too late for them to cast Chris he- Chris Pine as as a character, just to really maximize? <laughs> then we can have all the Chris's. Oh, yeah, that's an interesting note, um, and I know we're not going to talk about Wonder Woman <laughs> here. Chris is on Infinite Earths. <laughs> oh, God, yeah. That would work better if this was a DC movie, John, or Russ Garn. Uh But, uh, interesting thing to note, um, Wonder Woman is getting higher reviews than Guardians of the Galaxy 2. Thought that was, I it think was, it, it comes down to structure. I, I mean, I think it deserves it. I mean, yeah. like, I, to- I don't disagree necessarily, I mean, I haven't seen the film, but it's just weird to live in a time where that's the case, because that hasn't ever been the case since these movies started coming out, so... I, I'm surprised it happened so quickly. If we can go back to uh, Guardians for a minute, um, I think the one thing they, they really didn't nail was the explanation of Ego's plan and why it matters. Well, and they kind of just hand wave this as like, oh, it, it's beyond comprehension for normal mortals. But like his plan is apparently to cover everything in blue goo. Which I think that like, the is, idea is was he going to like that... absorb all the life into him? Is that yeah, it? Like he's just going to make making... everything him? Yeah, exactly. I think that was the idea. I don't know. They didn't show that part in the little uh, pod with the uh, the statues. I can't remember. Uh, oh, Garden the dioramas. So well. the, the dioramas. The diorama. Yeah. <laughs> That's a great way to deliver plot. I mean, like, like, and that's my biggest problem with the film, because I don't think it's bad, uh, but uh, there's so many things that were just like, this is just weird that we're getting, we're literally getting dioramas of the plot. I, like, I liked that, I, like, that actually, strange. if you think about it for a little minute, like, actually makes sense for Ego to do, because, like, you know, oh, if it's just... Peter Quill was his only uh, offspring, then why would he make a bunch of dioramas to explain everything? But like, oh no, if he's got like literally thousands upon thousands of kids that he's collecting, like of course he's going to build a diorama <laughs> to explain everything to them. That's funny. Oh, that, that's really the idea... fucked up and actually really true. The idea that after a couple thousand of these, he's like, oh, God, I got to find a better way to explain this to them in a way that I don't actually have to, like, interact with them. <laughs> so I, I, if we're about, I, I feel like we're probably getting ready to move on, but I have one more thing I wanted to say about the movie. Yes, Red Sky? I, I just want to say that I think that they did a really good job making sure that despite the fact that this is like a dumb superhero action movie, it had a really strong emotional core. And I felt like that they went out there with some sort of with their storylines about the characters and their family in a way that really did expect you to emotionally engage with them in a way that was very honest and allowed the characters to feel things. Yeah. You know, allowed Peter to sort of express his grief and his frustration uh, and his his feelings of being lost, uh, and sort of w- without his mother, and then without a father, and I think that that's really important. And 
you know, for the record, like, I, I went to go see this with my partner and both really had a great time. We walked out of there just like, oh, man, that was awesome. And then, like, you know, my partner had to use the restroom. So we, we go up the stairs. She goes in. I'm standing there, like, alone because it's late at night in the movie theater. And I just burst out sobbing for, like, five straight minutes. And it's like, that's a good superhero movie. <laughs> Yeah, no, I agree. Um, James, if there's one thing James Gunn does, it's, it's making really empathetic weirdos. And especially with, with sort of the Guardians, the, especially Guardians too, it took time to really develop pathos for every single one of them. Um, and so you felt for every single arc that they had. Granted, Drax and Mantis didn't get much of an arc. Uh, but, but everyone else, I think, got a really satisfying arc. Uh, Yondu, Gamora, Nebula, uh, Rocket and um, Peter all got really satisfying arcs and they all come together at that moment in the end. And that, that's a freaking gut punch. Like I, I was fine oh, yeah. until the, the Ravagers showed up because it was, it was just after like we had dealt with character deaths and reuniting families and, and it was sad, but it was just sort of okay. But then the Ravagers show up to, to send off Yondu and, and even though they said they wouldn't and, and then Rocket has that realization that they came for him, even though they said they wouldn't because they were family. And then I just broke down because that, that was, it was sad for a freaking, for, for a, a superhero movie about punching dudes and making eighties references. There is an emotional core there that I think really works. And that's the end of the movie. It cuts like honest tears. And then it's like, yep, that's yes. it. And then here's like five end credit yep. scenes, but like ignore that. That was kind of annoying. It was it was really nice to be able to walk out of the theater when with Wonder Woman the minute the credits started to roll. And you know, I think to some extent, like I was primed to feel that way about it because, like, his emotional journey is in large part about sort of like losing his mother to cancer, which I did, and also just the idea of like sort of his his father not being there, which uh, you know at, at the time, uh, sort of my dad's actually going around visiting uh, family, so I haven't seen him in a while. Uh, and on the one hand, yeah, that makes me more primed to react to this than I think many people would be. But on the other hand, we did, spoiler warning, like, a day after my mom died of cancer, and we did the Fallout 4 ending where the character named Father dies of cancer in front of you, and I didn't feel a goddamn thing watching that. I, I feel that speaks more about Fallout 4 than anything. Well, I'm saying, what I'm saying is, yeah, it, like, it doesn't matter if you're more primed to feel a certain way or less primed. You know, at some point, some emotional engagement still needs to happen. And yeah, Fallout 4 did not do that. And Guardians of the Galaxy, with a much smaller runtime, did that. While also having a raccoon and tiny baby tree, like, fighting waves of monsters. I will say I'm happy that they're growing Groot up again, because he didn't do like anything in this movie I didn't like Groot at all in this film I mean they ran the risk of, of having baby Groot be too obnoxious um, I think they used him just the right amount versus it, it could have been worse it could have been obnoxious cute Disney sidekick bad they have like two scenes where he really matters it's like the opening and then the jailbreak scene and then other than that he's just sort of there 
Yeah, I'm glad they didn't dwell more on that. I, I, going into it, it felt really like the Minions vibe. I was really worried with the way they set up all the trailers, because every trailer had him in it, uh, in, in a featuring role, because he's also in the end a little bit. And uh, I was really worried they were going to pull a Minions and like slowly make the films more about Groot, because that's what sells tickets. However, I will say, um, as somebody who follows theme parks, the Guardians ride at Disneyland opened recently, and all of the merch is is basically Baby Groot, and it is so obnoxious. They all dance. I don't know why the end of Guardians 1 and the intro to Guardians 2, dancing became Groot's thing, apparently. Baby Groot's thing. And it's just, I do not want a plastic dancing plushy Groot doll ever. I feel like that merchandise is not there for you. I guess. I want the plushie Howard the Duck. <laughs> well, who makes another cameo appearance in this one? Yes. yes. I don't know if that means anything to anybody, though. Maybe it does. I, I don't know. Only people over, like, 30. There was a guy sitting next to me in the theater who, like, definitely understood the significance of Howard the Duck immediately. Did he clap? Significance. I, I don't think he clapped, no. He's like, oh, it's the duck. That's the guy. And he was like talking to his girlfriend next to on the other side of him um, about like why it mattered. You know, not in like a, a hugely distracting way, but it was a, like not quiet enough that I couldn't overhear it. So apparently at least one person in the universe got that. Honestly, I'm done seeing Howard the Duck until they give him his own movie. <laughs> let's let's not go crazy here, Rutzkarn. No, let's go crazy, motherfucker. No, I want a Howard the Duck movie. Please, no. I'm an American. I have a right to see a Howard the Duck movie. You you really don't. <laughs> I'm pretty sure it's in the Constitution somewhere. So, editing the last episode of this podcast was a bit strange for me, because uh, I spent a good portion of the time uh, ragging on about how the Switch was basically unobtainable right now. And then literally... Like, 12 hours after we recorded that, I went to bed, got up, went to a Walmart, walked in, and bought a Switch. So... <laughs> Would you say there was some, there, there was some kind of uh, change in your circumstances? Some very sudden change between two binary extremes? Yes. It, it was, it was an, a okay. juxtaposition, you might say. Yeah. It flopped. It flip-flopped on you. Um, that's, that's a little bit of a simplification, actually. Uh, what happened was I got up in the morning and, um, I'm going to, on vacation to see you, Glitch, uh, you wonderful, who, wonderful rascal. Yeah, Steve Marvin. Thank you very much, Alex. And I wanted to get a switch before then for the plane. Uh, and I wasn't really like planning on trying to get one immediately, but I went on, I checked a few websites. For, for the, and it was uh, like just like the hour long plane flight. Yeah, and also because, you know, we like Mario Kart and it'd be cool to have Mario Kart to play while I'm there. I still don't believe you're bringing it after the whole uh, Vive fiasco. I think it was a Vive, Oculus, whatever you had. What oh, I'm gonna bring my to... my oh my it's a, virtual I have a vibe, thing, but... the California well we're both down there I'm totally told gonna not be to there. do it and, go... and it why, made sense because there wasn't gonna be enough room anyway you need like times, okay why okay. would you by two meters square there's no fighting in here this is the war room how do you like the switch this is the perfect place for fighting 
it's it's cool. Um, but like like before I get to that, I want I want to clarify a little bit. Like I did do some research here. Um, where I got up on Sunday and I was like, I'm not going to do anything today. So why don't I take a look at like where I stand as far as Switch acquisition goes? Because I don't want to do what Campster did and spend like $450 for a Switch and get scammed. That happened one time. That did happen one time, but it also did happen. Um, so I went onto a website and I checked some some stuff. And uh, the website I was looking at had like a map, and it actually said like, "Oh, uh, there the switch is in stock today at your local Walmart." Uh, and I thought that was like, you know, that that's interesting. But also, this website was like kind of half broken, and all like some of the links didn't work. So I went and checked Walmart.com, and uh, it said out of stock. But then it also said under that, only four left. I thought, hmm, that's odd. So I said, what the fuck? I'm not doing anything today. I got in my car, drove down to my local Walmart, uh, walked in going like, I'm not going to find a Switch here. And I go over to the display and there's like seven Switches in it. And I go get a uh, cashier to open the display and she's like, yeah, I don't know what's going on with these. Usually when people hear that these are in stock, they're just like gone immediately. There are people lining up outside to get one immediately. Uh, so it's, it's still not easy to get one of these, but apparently uh, maybe not as hard to get one of these as they used to be. I mean, it sounds like you lucked out, but yeah, it, it definitely sounds like I got lucky. Um, the switch is a really interesting device. Um, I haven't actually played too much on it cause I want to have some stuff to play while I'm on vacation. And there's not that many games for this thing. Um, you weren't you weren't kidding at all about the interface being bare bones. By the way, holy shit! There's no messaging. There's yeah. no web browser. There's a store with like two categories. No media apps whatsoever. It's basic. Yeah. Uh, but I got Breath of the Wild, and uh, it's really like it, it is a really cool thing to play i i thought the controller scheme with the two joy cons and like the joy con grip and stuff would be really really like like maybe manageable to play but definitely not comfortable at all but uh it actually works pretty well like i don't find myself absolutely craving a pro controller or something to play games while i'm sitting um and the game and the thing in portable mode actually looks really good. It's a 720p screen, I think, but it doesn't feel like it. I think that's yeah. due to the size, but that's another thing. Like this thing is not large, and I think like if you haven't seen one of these in person, you probably don't understand just how small this thing actually is. Like the screen is the size of my phone. Um, it- Seven and a half inches, I think. It's it's oh, just it's like large 6. enough with 3. the Joy-Con. It's it's just large enough with the Joy-Cons to not really be put in pocket portable, but it is yeah small. And uh, and the switching to like like just putting it in the dock and immediately switching to TV mode like really works. And that was the one thing like they really had a nail with this thing, so that's good. Like it's not like you don't get a loading screen or any kind of like weird finicky stuff. It just immediately pops over to the TV. So yeah, it's cool. Um, I don't have any impressions on Breath of the Wild because I've only played like an hour of it. Uh, 
but I wanted to touch on that a little bit. Basically admit that you lied about how, how difficult it is to get a Switch. Yeah, I'm a horrible liar. Womp womp. Yeah, basically. All right, moving on. Uh, Chris and Alex, you guys were both at two separate uh, video game conferences recently. Not E3, but something um, smaller, more intimate, and significantly more academically focused. Why don't you tell us about those? Do you want to go first, or me? Uh, You can go first. Mine's probably shorter. Uh, so I just got back from CGSA, which is the Canadian Game Studies Association conference that happens in conjunction with Congress, which is Canada's National Humanities Conference. So basically all the people who do art stuff, not arts and crafts, but things that aren't science, engineering, and math get together, and it's... It's really, it's, it's, it's a large conference, but CGSA is a small portion of that. And so it's game scholars from Canada, but also United States. And we even had some people Skype in from the UK, including uh, Mark R. Johnson, who's a really cool dude who's doing a lot of cool stuff with procedural generation and um, is like a good colleague of mine. So we basically sit in a room for several days and listen to conference presentations, sometimes from grad students, sometimes from professors, and everything in between. And um, those consist of, like, works in progress things, or sometimes we do have game demos, but for the most part, they're typical conference papers about games or play. And then... We usually drink for the rest of the night because Congress very much acknowledges the crippling alcoholism in academia. So they give out drink tickets as part of your membership. (laughs) And so, you know, it's a good time. Different games was happening in Toronto in conjunction with CGSA. I didn't get to go because it's really exhausting to spend three days at a conference because... It's like sitting in class all day, except you're, you know everyone that's presenting and you want to network with them and you're legitimately really need to pay attention and be engaged. And when you do that all day, every day for three days and get no sleep because you're drinking all night, it's kind of a, it's kind of a whirlwind. But it was good. Um, I presented on K-pop and esports. It was a fun presentation. I, choose, I chose not to do anything too serious. Uh, my slides got corrupted minutes before I presented, so that was oh, a no. real bummer. I spent <laughs> oh, so boy. long on my slides, which is something you should never do. They always tell you, don't spend so much time on your slides, but I did, because it was fun. And But other than that, it was good. I, I learned a lot about what other people are doing in, in games research right now, and that's kind of the the point of it. Can you talk a little bit more about uh, your personal presentation? 
Yeah, so mine was on um, the intersection between K-pop and esports world and sort of a little bit of vice versa. So the history of K-pop at esports events, um, the history of kind of K-pop influences in games, and then the role of esports in the K-pop world. So it what do you was mean kind you're of about influence. A... You talking about like a, an aesthetic influence or um, economical aesthetic? It was kind of a large overview. It w- I was originally going to do a full like economical like sort of analysis of like the Hallyu wave, and and, and I did that a little bit. The the Korean wave, the kind of exportation of of Korean pop culture around the world. Um, but then I decided I don't know anything about I don't know enough about economics to do a whole presentation like that. So then I was like, let's also analyze this K-pop song and talk about why K-pop songs now have these sort of like humble brags of of gaming skill in them and why that's an attractive thing to young girls these days. And it was so a whole bunch of different things. I realize that's not this is not a thing that a lot of people can jump in on, but yeah, academic conferences are pretty much essential when it comes to your academic career you're supposed to go to at least i think two to three a year oh wow that's got to be brutal yeah that's something jareth has been doing for the past several years which is why he keeps coming to vegas and hanging out with me for some reason because it turns out vegas is a great place for academic conferences is it yeah unfortunately in canada we don't really get a lot lot of of hot places what's the vegas of canada (laughs) Uh, Still regular old U.S. Vegas. Probably Niagara Falls. Really? Yeah, that's probably it. There's no casinos in Toronto. Yeah, I would say Niagara Falls. It's a huge tourist trap. People emphasize the gambling Las Vegas, but really the most important Vegas quality is just the fact that it's a gaudy shit show, of which there is no escape. So Niagara Falls actually makes a lot of sense. Yep. It also helps that the Canadian Falls are significantly more impressive than the American Falls. Like, you go to Niagara Falls, it's like, oh, cool, Niagara Falls, which one is the American? And you point to this little tiny waterfall that's over on the side, and they're like, oh. Yeah, that about sums it up. If you keep going further into Canada, though, you get the wine country. That's the real show. Never mind that waterfall. Waterfall of wine, that's what I need. (laughs) So that, like, do you head east into Quebec? Oh, no, it's just probably half an hour outside of Niagara. It's called Niagara-on-the-Lake. Oh, really? The last time I was at Niagara Falls, I could not legally drink in either Canada or the United States. So, it's been a long time since I've been there. So, Chris, what about your convention? Uh, I'm trying to figure out what to even say about it. Um, I recently got back from uh, Gotland, Sweden, uh, which is that big island you see off the coast of Sweden to the east, if you look at Sweden on a map. Um, it's in the Baltic. It is very much in the Baltic. Um, and I flew out there for the Gotland Game Conference, which is interesting because um, the, the situation there is kind of weird because it it was a school founded, I, I can't remember the exact year, but it was in the 90s. It's a fairly recent school um, back when they were expanding, you know, university presence on uh, all throughout Sweden. And it's this little uh, art and design school on the island in, uh, um, oh God, I can't remember the name, Visby, uh, which is like what the oldest... It's it's the oldest continuously inhabited city on the island with stats or with uh, ruins that date back to hundreds of years ago, like very very old 
crumbling castles. It looks like something I, I arrived there and my first thought was, oh my God, they have temples of time here. Um, <laughs> it, they, they are crumbling churches. It's pretty impressive. Um, and it's weird because this new design school was, um, apparently there was a round of consolidation and was basically combined with Uppsala University, which is one of the old, which is, I believe, the oldest university in Sweden, uh, which was founded in like the 1400s. So you have this game design school on Gotland Island that has been consumed by uh, the mainland's Uppsala University that has been open for 300 years or 400 years. And it's just awkward. Uh, no one was really sure what to do with it. So that's that's sort of a fun situation for a school to be in. Um, but they have a design school and they have a game conference uh, every year. Um, I think George Weedman went two years ago um, and I went this year and gave a speech and it was pretty cool. Um, I've actually never gone to a proper academic conference before. Um, most of what I've gone to have been industry conferences like GDC, which are weird and awful and awkward in their own way. So it was neat to see how academic conferences can, can be similar. Um, but I think the pattern is generally what Alex described. Uh, lots of networking, lots of paying rapt attention to presentations and discussions, and then lots of drinking in the evenings and networking. Some of that sounds appealing. I mean, yeah, it's fun. Uh, it, it, it does drinking. take a lot out of you. Yeah, I, I think the takeaway we're getting here is that Academic conferences are an excuse to get really fucking hammered for four days. Well, I mean, GDC is the same way, right? At least for, for a lot of networking industry folks. It's, it's alcohol that greases the networking, right? The, the, the meeting people yeah. you're not super comfortable with that you only maybe have a superficial connection to because you work in the same industry or same field. Um, and it helps that happen. Um, and, and I think networking is really a lot of the point of a lot of this stuff. Um, I did a speech presentation. Uh, it was basically a reworking of my game violence video. You guys have seen that. Um, and then there were some other cool presentations. Um, uh, God, what were the... Hold on. Oh, they don't have the names associated with everything. Oh, uh, Sabine Herrera, uh, Doris Rush, um, both did some really great stuff. There were pieces on um, sort of a presentation that reminded, well, didn't just remind me, I've made reference to uh, Robert Yang's piece on, on sort of tearing down the concept of empathy games uh, in the queer game space. There was uh, stuff about games as a grieving space, um, games as, um, oh, what was it? Oh, uh, games about genitalia, which was a fun speech. We had something similar <laughs> at ours. Uh Really? What was yours about? Uh, well, we had we had a kind of analysis of Grinder as a sort of like play space, and um, the presenter connected it back to like those old um, I don't remember they're called the cards that they used to give out, like the trading cards that were essentially pictures of muscle dudes, and how like that connected basically to how um, Tinder's like photography and, and interface was you know similar. But yeah, it was really nice because we were in a, a room that was just all glass walls. And so people in the school were just walking by and seeing these like pictures of, of grinder dudes. <laughs> and, and they're just like their faces were priceless. Did you like accumulate a sizable spectatorship? I don't think so. I think everyone was just horrified. Aww. 
Because a lot of the people that go to Congress are like old Canadian literature people or like they're other people that are like, what is Twitter? How does it work? And then us, we're just in the corner. They like segregate us probably into a whole building for all we know. There's just a whole game. other building that has all the cool people in it. Exactly. I will also say that I don't know about your conference, Chris, but we do a lot of workshops which are really helpful, especially for uh, some of us who are not so up and with it with things like uh, internet security and um, like how to teach. So we have a lot of things like here's how to make this space a feminist space or here's how to teach um, queer games or whatever. So that's always like a really helpful thing. And I wish there was more of that because a lot of times with these conference presentations, they give them and some people ask a few questions and people talk after and they're like, here's my business card and let's, or let's collaborate or something. And nothing ever happens. There's no conversations that are had afterwards. So at least if there's workshops, I feel like I'm getting something out of that because I'm also learning about something that can, I can apply. I feel like uh, your conference was decidedly more um, professional academic. Uh, the, the Gotland Game Conference uh, seems focused more on the students a little bit. Um, in addition to the actual conference where we had you know speakers giving speeches and, and things like that, um, there was also um, most of the speakers and additional people who were invited were on the jury to judge uh, student games. They hold it at this time of year because it's basically the culmination of all of the student projects for the design school. So we had to go and, and judge basically how the students made their games and, and whether things worked or didn't work and that sort of thing. Um, so I think there, there weren't workshops as sort of the extracurriculars. It was more going out, playing the student games, talking about the student games and, and breaking them down. So I think it's, I think maybe that's a, I, I don't know if, I don't know how to describe that having not been to any other academic conferences, but it sounds like yours was more professional academic focused and this one was more aimed at, at the students. Yeah, that's pretty rad though. No, it was. There were some cool games there. Um, I, I don't want to get into all of them, but, but they, they, there was some neat stuff. So I think that's about all we have to say about conferences this week. Uh, Rutskarn, you had an interesting discussion topic for us. I have a discussion topic. You do have a discussion topic. More than that, I will not promise. <laughs> what a segue. So I've been playing Blood and Gold Caribbean lately. Oh, really? You're still playing that? Yeah, I am. Uh, and as I, I said before, uh, every time I sit down to play that game, I'm like, all right, this is it. Last time I played, I discovered the last really stupid thing in this game. Uh, this time, I'm going to sit down. It's probably just going to be grind. I'm just going to end up de engaging with the default experience of the game, which isn't all that good, and I'm not gonna. Ha I'm gonna have to find a way to make it funny. And every week, something else just makes my jaw drop. So you, you could read the series to that, but it's it's actually been making me think a lot lately about how much fun I've had playing Battlespire and Blood and Gold Caribbean and all these other like really bad games. You do seem a glutton for punishment. Well, okay. Here's the thing. As I've, I, I, yeah, I've talked before about how sometimes, like a badly put together game, it's really fun to try to find ways to enjoy it, like not the way it was designed to be enjoyed. 
you know, like, with, with a badly, with a well-put-together game, the mechanics are very balanced and very, you know, all bug-fixed and, you know, tight. And, you know, you can only really engage with them on the terms of the developer. With a game like this, the sky's the limit. It's, it's like you're trying to outsmart uh, their beleaguered uh, playtesting team and figure out ways to abuse their game and get ahead when you're not supposed to. And actually, that, so that, that's made me bring the question to you guys. Uh, what's the most fun you've ever had out of a terrible game, mechanically speaking? Like, I'm not talking about, like, you know, we talk oh, about, I'm like... Oh, so on. Yeah, oh, awesome. Just just to clarify before I, I throw to you, uh, you know, we talk a lot about having fun with, like, dumb stories and dumb characters, but, like, what's the most fun you've had with bad mechanics? Okay, Alex. Yeah. So, I am the proud owner of a 3DO. Oh, no. And we've always had the 3DO, and we love it, and it's our baby. But the problem is that there are several... Uh, light gun FMV games that exist for the 3DO, and we never had oh, a no. light gun. So we played that game. I can tell you, it's Mad Dog McCree is the one, which has been ported to the Wii since. And there's a space... <laughs> Mad Dog McCree! Yes, look it up, it's good. And there's a space one, too. But So we played this game with the D-pad because we were desperate. And... Try playing a light gun game with the D-pad. You and and when you're a child and bored, you memorize the hell out of those videos because you. That's the only way you can play, and so. But but it's like one of my fondest gaming memories as a kid is like trying to wrangle the controls and memorize these FMV games. Where you're like, where's that dude coming in? The one with the black hat comes out of like the, the the saloon at, at this time, and we're both ready for it. And and being two player, you can optimize it a little. And I'm pretty sure we never beat it because it's impossible. But give it a shot. It's 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 so good. And so, yeah, I'm I'm trying to like picture this in my head. How do you play a light gun game with the D-pad? Well, I guess the game still allowed you to move your crosshair with a controller. Oh, so you have to hold down the D-pad to like move your crosshair over the oh, screen. No, it's a good time. That's all I got. <laughs> I feel good like. Answer. I feel like Josh and I probably had plenty of these because I remember distinctly having uh, these problems uh, with old video games with Josh and, and breaking things, playing with him. But I can't remember any. The only game I can think of isn't really a bad game, kind of. It's Risk of Rain. I kind of liked it, kind of didn't. Lots of people don't like it. But uh, you can totally break it by just getting certain power-ups and sitting in the level. And the whole point of Risk of Rain is that it, it powers up. Um, like, the longer you play, the harder it gets. But if you get these power-ups, you can just kill everything and absorb the power-ups they drop to the point where uh, you can completely break your computer doing that. Like, I, I literally left it up for a day and it blue-screened to death to me. Is great. Oh yeah, that's right. You did an experiment where you wanted to see how powerful you could get, and <laughs> yeah, did you checked my uh, my played hours the other day? You're like, you spent 102 hours in this game. I'm like, nope, <laughs> yeah. that was like three days of just leaving the game up. <laughs> wow. Did wow, it like blue screen just after a while, or did you like go back and touch it, and then the second you did something, your computer crashed? 
No, I was able to, for a while, I was able to touch it and stuff, but eventually, because, um, like, I, I work from home, so uh, I just had it up, like, kind of in the background, and eventually it got to the point where my computer just crashed in the middle of work. <laughs> I was just like, oh, there it goes. That's pretty great. <laughs> I should run the experiment again now. I wonder if they patched it. I should run that experiment again now now that I have a beefier machine and see how long I can go for do you remember any old broken games from our childhood, Josh? I like there are so many that are like on the tip of my brain that I can't think of. I know we the had Rebel fun Assault games, games were pretty bad. The going back that, to FMV that... games, those were the FMV games that. Um, I don't know if you actually played those with me though. Maybe not. That's not Wampa Stampa. That came later, right? That's that's. Another one. No, that's that. Uh, yeah, the debug mode in the N64 version of Shadows of the Empire was pretty <laughs> fucking bad. Empire, oh yeah, I did play these. I did play these. I remember these. Oh my goodness. Um, I I do fondly remember us playing Star Wars Droidworks and <laughs> making really bad robots, and then one <laughs> particular moment robots. where. We, uh, you were playing, and I was over your shoulder, and you walked around, and then suddenly an assassin droid showed up, and you screamed at the top of your lungs, turned around, jumped off a ledge, and died. Yeah, you, you, you're selling me short here. It wasn't like, it wasn't like I screamed at the top of my lungs once. It was I was about halfway through the level. I screamed the entire way back. Still, like, terrified, ran all the way back to the beginning of the level, which starts on an elevator, and then fell off the elevator into a pit. And somehow survived, but was stuck forever, and I had to restart the level. <laughs> Ridiculous. Um, I'm not sure this really counts, but the first N64 game we ever had was Superman. <laughs> which did you enjoy oh, that? That was unplayable. We, we made an uh, an honest try to try to play that game, and thought like like it was our fault for messing up. But no, it turns out that game controls really really poorly. I'm, uh, I'm but pretty I'm not sure, sure that we tried we to get Dad to help us figure it out. At yeah, some point. isn't that a hell of a moment when you finally become <laughs> old enough that like you know that yeah that wasn't my fault. That yeah. game just fucking sucked. Yeah, we got an N64 pretty late into the console's life cycle, actually. Yeah, we did. It was a gift. Good old no, we, Ted. Was it a... I thought we bought it It, it, from it was kind of a gift. It was very heavily discounted. We, we, we didn't we have a lot of this, money at the time. We um, had this friend of our parents who owned a furniture store. Uh, we, we and like also on the, on the side sold like electronics. It was a really weird store. It, 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 like looking back, I don't, I don't really yeah, know what it like was. It, it was, was not furniture. like an attractive there furniture was store. Jewelry. It was, it was like a a warehouse, a small warehouse full of dusty furniture, <laughs> at really cheap prices. It it was weird. Like I don't know how it existed. I mean, it doesn't exist anymore. So. Yeah, I don't think he's still doing anything with it. Like I no. think he had to close down. Probably. But that's how we got our Nintendo 64, and and he was always he was always like discounting things really heavily to like the local kids. He was a great yeah. guy. Uh, still alive, I say was. It sounds like he's dead. He's not dead. Still, still friends with him. But uh, but he he heavily discounted the Nintendo 64 for us so that we could actually afford one and play it when are we you, were. Uh, are you like still in contact with him on Facebook or something? Yeah, yeah. I I, I don't really talk to him very much. Uh, but like, like the times that like 
we're talking about New York or whatever. You know, sometimes I'll, I'll well, I definitely remember stories of him because he was so funny. But but also like uh, the things the parents keep in contact, and we talk like vicariously through them. Yeah. Um, I don't know if like any of those games that we put up have been examples of like a truly bad game that had mechanics that we still had fun with though. Um, I'm trying to think like. It, it, this conversation has brought up a weird point for me in that I can't remember the last time I played a a really bad game. Like like I keep thinking of things like Fallout 4, which was not great, but I still had a lot of fun with it. I put a ton of hours into that, and so like I still got my money's worth out of Fallout 4, even if the story was crap. And I like like from a a design perspective, I like I'm like, what the fuck is wrong with this game? It still yeah, wasn't whatever like, whatever bad. you think about. Whatever you think about Fallout 4 was not bad enough to be interesting. Yeah, that's for sure. So it's I feel been like a long Skyrim time actually is, so is Skyrim and Fallout 3 are actually better examples of this of like having really poor mechanics that you can just kind of exploit the hell out of. Especially Fallout 3 because they threw a bunch of like overpowered shit at you as if they didn't really understand what that would mean to be able to go invisible at yeah. will. I don't think there's ever been a season of spoiler warning where I was more overpowered by the end than Fallout 3, except like Skyrim, but I fucking broke the alchemy system to do it. So I'm, I'm trying to figure out what counts as a bad enough game to be on this list, because I've got like a short yeah. list of games here that I'm debating bringing up. Like, there there are games that I just disagree with from a design perspective that I think are pretty bad, Like, but I still play because I... I'm a sucker for the systems they have. Like, I really do not care mechanically for Diablo, but I still play it because it's just a Skinner box. It is a glorified Skinner box of Doom where numbers get bigger and bigger, and I occasionally get loot out of monsters I slay, and that's awful. <laughs> it's a really badly designed game, um, but I still play it. But if we want, like, more interestingly bad games, um, going back to FMV games... I played Sewer Shark on the Sega CD a lot as a kid. Um, a million pounds of tube steak! Yes. I actually got pretty good at a game that is really not meant to be played to get good at. I, you, it's, it's, it's a really bad game. I don't want to explain it, but it's an FMV shooter that you're also piloting a ship at the same time by clicking the little sign before you turn that you have to turn. It's bad. Um, another game that I play that because I'm a sucker for collectathons uh, that is also mechanically really bad. Most of the Lego games I find are mechanically abysmal. Um, they're cute, they're funny, but they are badly conceived puzzles mixed with the collectathon, and I I just I don't think that's very good. Um. Also, No Man's Sky. I enjoyed my time with that, even okay, though that's, that's a mechanical a train wreck. I've been thinking about picking it up recently. I feel like it would be more appealing if I had more time to just kind of zen game with it, but I haven't found a lot of time to do that recently. It's only gotten weirder and more confusing with the addition of the base building mechanics, and I just... No one knows what they're trying to go There's for a, anymore. Oh, yeah. They added base building in the game where you're supposed to keep moving. Like, what is that? I no one knows. No, nothing makes sense in this game. Nothing makes sense. Um, 
Uh, oh, and and if we're just going for a straight up weird mechanic games uh, that I still enjoy playing, Island Three Fifty Nine, the VR dinosaur killing game. It, it's not very good, and it's like half broken. Wait, what? But I there's something about, I've never heard of this game before. How do I buy a dinosaur VR it's game? It's on Steam. Um, I mean, it's it's really bad because it's a teleporting FPS where you're teleporting around to shoot dinosaurs and go out on the hunt. But the idea is you have to go out, hunt dinosaurs, collect the things they drop, and bring it back to the uh, bring it back to base. So it's like a high score game. It's terrible and it's broken, and there's all sorts of ways to cheat out, cheat out the AI by teleporting. Um, but oh, man, you could. You could totally. I'm sorry. I'm jumping like way off topic here, but you could totally do a VR game that is literally just the sound of thunder. I don't know what that is. It's a short story by um. I don't remember who it's by. It's the the one where a uh, hunter like they've developed um Ray time traveling. Yeah, Ray Bradbury. Oh, okay, cool. uh, they've developed the ability to time travel into the past, um, and this has led to this sort of pastime of going into the past to hunt dinosaurs right before the meteor hits the Cretaceous extinction event, and uh, and the like. You you have to follow this very specific path and not touch anything and not fuck anything up, and then uh, and go and hunt dinosaurs. Uh, and then warp back, and the main character uh, accidentally falls off the path, crushes the butterfly, and changes all of history, and fucks everything up. Cool. It's a Simpsons episode. And I'm surprised you haven't read this story Is it a Magic School Bus episode? Did the Magic School Bus do a time-traveling episode about Chaos Theory? That's amazing. I don't know now, but I hope they do... Anyway, uh, Island 359 is, is kind of a broken, broken, fun, dumb game. And if you have a VR headset and want a big, dumb, broken shooter about shooting velociraptors and the occasional triceratops, it's kind of cool. I believe that's actually where the butterfly effect name came from. For specifically, uh, like, fucking everything up in time travel-related stuff. But it's a chaos theory phrase, I thought. Right, I know. I, I think... Or maybe it was like Ray Bradbury used that as a, a metaphor for what's really going on. Um, I'm not sure. look it up! I mean, because the idea was the butterfly would flap its wings and weather systems being chaotic, the smallest yeah, change. Yeah, I know. And... Are we looking this up? Is this what the show has become? Apparently think, the origin yeah. is from the 1980s, which is after the book. From the notion that a butterfly fluttering in... Rio de Janeiro could change the weather in Chicago. Hmm. Neither neither of those were correct. Influence. Were a a sound base. of thunder is often miscredited as the origin of the term butterfly effect. Okay, so I'm wrong. But did, it's a cool coincidence. Did, didn't one of my thing come through? Yeah, 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 you did. Okay, okay. I couldn't tell. It looked like maybe it, I didn't transmit. I uh, have any other games we want to bring up here for this? Yeah, <laughs> you fucked everything no, up. I properly, it's all your fault. I We're gonna blame everything on you. The flow. I, I uh, ran it was my just list. a small sentence. You could say it was like a butterfly effect. Bam! We're back on topic. Uh, I actually want to say something. Uh, second edition Dungeons and Dragons. I think it's a good example. Of this oh, that's a good one. I like me some bad Dungeons and Dragons mechanics. <laughs> Yeah, because the, the, the mechanics are really unbalanced. And this actually extends, I'd say, to even third edition. 
where the mechanics are absolutely unstable, uh, and it's some classes are clearly better than others, some races clearly better than others. Spells can just completely turn the balance of the game upside down. You know what? That's fine. I've always sort of secretly or perhaps somewhat unsecretly liked systems where the end result is incredibly unbalanced. Like, I, I like Fallout 3 more than Fallout 4 because you could break it so heavily. I don't see why there's such a focus in games to, to especially single-player games. Multiplayer games, of course, you want balance. But in single-player yeah. games, I don't see why there's uh, such a need to get rid of uh, sort of uh, the most optimal like game-breaking things. Um, I, I miss the ability to break things. I, I like, like you said, Fallout 3 was a good example of something that you could totally break. And and Fallout 4 is is damaged by the fact that I can't be more creative. It, it, it was rewarding to be creative and to not even necessarily break the game, but to do something unique. It made you feel like you were outsmarting the game, even if that yeah. maybe maybe was intended. It, it was cool to that's, find... That's why I enjoyed the, the Let's Plays like the one I'm, I'm doing right now. That feeling. Yeah. It was cool to find like some weird way that the mechanics intersected that was obviously not intended and, and gave you some like crazy awesome ability or change the way the game is played. In some ways, I think I'd actually I'd enjoy a puzzle adventure game uh, based on the pr- premise of a game that is more or less impossible. Where like each of the actual, where, where it's like like one of those Mario ROM hacks in principle, where they they developed this game that's just requires an incredibly intense level of skill to pull off correctly, but they also, like, willfully leave in a bunch of exploits. You could almost make that, like, the plot of a game. Like, you're trapped in a video game that's impossible, and you have to find ways to break the game to uh, make it possible to do what you need to do to get out of it. That's kind of like what the Stanley Parable is all about. Yeah. Not literally, like, exploits in the game, but that was, like, breaking what the sense of what you think the game space is. All right. Um, let's move on to some mailbag. We've got a bunch of questions here. Um, i got a question for you guys. Do you want to do uh, serious questions first and funny questions later, or funny questions first and serious questions later? All serious questions. That's boring. Serious questions, then one silly one. Mix them up. Like, ask half of a sentence of one and half of a sentence of other. <laughs> so incomprehensible questions. That's the way I like them. All right. Um. Let's do. This is kind of. Let's do this one. This was a uh, uh, sort of tangentially related to what we've been talking about. Um. Dear anime titties. Which game have you gotten, or which games have you gotten really deep into and learned all the systems in because you enjoyed the gameplay so much? Love, Gainax. Ooh. I've got a perfect uh, example for this one because I've been, that's all I've been playing all week, which is uh, Star Wars Rebellion, my favorite video game of all time. I am on my third playthrough of the week, and I'm is a that little really your favorite video game ever? It is my favorite video game ever. Not it's it's both because of the nostalgia of of having that when I was a kid. When I was really into Star Wars, I would watch Star Wars like once a week, um, and uh, 
And also, it was just such a... There's so much in that game. You can you can read about each planet. It's so cool. And and this is me freaking out about it in a way that nobody else will, will necessarily uh, get because this is this is the game I played growing up. But I've been playing through that uh, all week and I... I'm, I've gotten to the point where I'm doing experiments just to mess around. Like, uh, I, I, for those of you don't, who don't know, it's a strategy game. There's sort of like an inner area and then an outer area. And the inner area has planets you can build on, and the outer area sometimes does, sometimes doesn't. It's all, like, unexplored. Uh, and my game right now is I absolutely do nothing on the, the center worlds. All I do is explore the outer worlds, and uh, I'm, like, I'm not going to send a single ship into the, the core uh, of the galaxy until I've explored and popular uh, like like diplomatized my way uh, on all of the outer rim worlds. That's the game I'm playing Are right now. Are you playing as the rebels or the imperials? I'm playing as the rebels. <laughs> playing okay. so it's impossible to do that experiment as the empire. <laughs> uh, I mean, it is. So you the, just win. Because because at this point I'm you know I, the game isn't challenging for me anymore. So I wanted to make it artificially challenging. Sorry about that. I wanted to make it artificially challenging uh, in order to, like, actually... Because I want to have, like, these big space battles, right? But they never happen because I'm always dominating. So, at this point, I just want to see what happens. That's my example. To give some context here, Star Wars Rebellion is a late 90s... Sure, I'd call it a 4X space game, uh, but it's a, a, like, very hardcore strategy game. Um, this is, this thing shipped with a 250 page paperback manual, which I think dad might have. I'm not sure I brought it with me when I moved out. I know where it is. I mean, I know relatively where it is. I've, I've, I picked it up, um, at some point before I moved. We ought to pull that out into a let's read video series. (laughs) (laughs) Um, and uh, which it also has the unfortunate, uh, handicap of having a, a user interface based off of the extremely popular Windows 3.1 visual aesthetic. So that's my example. Pretty pretty fun game. If you want, you can pick it up on uh, Good Old Games or Steam, but it doesn't work as well on Steam. I would I would get the Good Old Games version. Yeah, I got really in depth into the mechanics of Guild Wars, the first one, not the second one. Uh, in fact, the fact that the second one was significantly simpler and, and did not have the kind of mechanics interplay as Guild Wars had was a significant component of the reason why I stopped playing that game. Uh, Guild Wars 1 was sort of like, if you took Diablo 2's online system, made it like a persistent online system a la um, something like Fantasy Star or more recently Destiny, and then like, made all the mechanics sort of, like, RPG by way of collectible card game. Like, you had a set of eight skills that you could bring into any area. And the skills would play off of one another to create, like, some pretty silly effects. I think I've talked about before... um there was a skill called uh, Protective Spirit, and the wording of the skill, like, the wording of all the skills was very important. Um, and the wording of the skill was, like, basically that um, you could, in no single attack, take more than 10% of your maximum health in damage. Uh, so that's a pretty good skill in general. 
But then you had the ability to equip a bunch of equipment that significantly reduced your maximum health to the point where you only had 55 health. This was called a 55 HP monk, and it was used to solo farm stuff in the game. Uh, and basically what would happen is you'd have this, like, you'd be down to 55 health, and you'd stack up a whole bunch of health regen items or, or spells, and then use Protective Spirit on you so that you could only lose 5 health per attack. And you would just immediately regenerate to full every time you were attacked because you had so little health and regeneration was so fast. And you could just use this to walk into like areas of the game that were designed for like eight-man parties and just completely wreck everything. Uh, and that was the kind of like way that that the abilities in Guild Wars played off each other and like playing that game on any sort of like serious level required you to really get into the mechanics and really dig in deep and like understand how these various skills played off one another and like what optimal like skill combinations were uh, in a really cool way that I've never seen before or since in an RPG. Hey, glitch. Glitch. Do you want to play Guild Wars 1? I want to play Guild Wars 1, but also, did you kill everybody else while we weren't looking? I don't know. I think I might have scared nah. them away with Star Wars Rebellion. Just letting let you have your Guild Wars moment. G- Guild Wars was fun. <laughs> I will I will pipe in and say that. I did enjoy it it's to still a running. point. I also enjoyed the story in that game. I thought the game's story was good. But yeah, there was a lot of cool little mechanical things you could do. My biggest problem with it, like, the only reason I didn't play it as much as you did, Josh, is it was a lot of work, and I don't like MMOs. Yeah. I mean, I'm just struggling to think of a game I invested anywhere near as much time as that into. I, there are game, there have been games I've played for a long time, but not games that I have invested like trying to become a pro tier player. Like, I think the closest I ever got maybe was hanging out with you and Dave while playing Destiny, Josh. Yeah, like, I was thinking about that. Like. We, and even then, we didn't have a four. We didn't. Ha- we don't know enough people to play Destiny. We never really got to do the raids. But yeah. so we, even then, we weren't like top tier players. We weren't. We weren't doing the raids, but we would be able to do the nightfalls pretty regularly by spamming them and knowing the knowing the hiding spots and the glitches. Hi. I, I think that's the closest I've ever gotten. Um. Did I did I misinterpret the question? Because if we're talking about games, we got most like competitive in. Uh, well, well, not competitive, yeah, but you... like. Getting to know the system and, like... I, I guess I didn't think about it in that way because I didn't spend as much time, but I also really got into competitive Overwatch and I was in Left 4 Dead competitive back when that existed. Good old thing. I just wanted to insert that in there. I'm just trying to figure it out because I, I don't necessarily mean competitive, but just, like, getting... To, I feel like to be in competitive play, you have to know the system's in and out and be sort of that top-tier yeah. pro player. And even even in a single-player game... Like, I've never been so into Mario that I know the exact timing of how to do the backwards jump to get infinite one-ups or whatever. Like, I know that that trick exists. I don't necessarily know how to do it. Like, I don't I don't play games... I've never gotten into a game so much that I've needed to know the intricate inner workings of the mechanics in a way that doesn't allow me to just play the game. Like, I've never tried to, like, break them or push them to their absolute peak. I don't know, maybe I'm weird. No, I think I'm the same way. Like, I don't... I know there's a lot of people that are really obsessed with, like, 
they have their spreadsheets for their game and the most optimal this and that. And sometimes that's important depending on the type of game. But typically, like if I'm spending a lot of time in a game, it's just going to be practicing the game. So like I, I was... I wouldn't call myself professional, but I took like StarCraft II pretty seriously. I took Marvel vs. Capcom II pretty seriously. But that was more just like, hey, play it a bunch. Play with different people. Experiment with matchups and stuff like that. And like, I never got to the point where I was like, let's time everything and look at the frame data and stuff like that. Because I just can't be bothered. But I respect people that do that kind of thing because that's how esports continues to be fun and interesting, especially with older games, right? Like competitive melee, for example. Yeah, that's pretty much like all the the Smash scene is at this point. There's still those who take like four pretty seriously, but yeah, because Nintendo doesn't update their games, yeah, they're stuck with what they have. I actually sort of have like the reverse problem that you do, where like. I, if I get into a game, I like start to take it really seriously. Like if I'm playing an MMO, I'm looking up builds and like trying to figure out like, okay, how do I not fuck up my character and end up putting a lot of work into that? And I actually have to like, like I've been trying to pull myself away from that because that's sort of been damaging the enjoyment I get out of some of these games is like the obsessiveness that I have with like, Especially in games where you can't respec or like reset your progress really easily to 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 change up like to fix mistakes that you make. Like I'm really hesitant to make decisions in games like that because I want to do all the research and get like everything that I can understand about it and and figure out the exact optimal way to do it. Um, and that is not like a matter of as the question asks like enjoying the gameplay so much that I got into it, but just sort of like an obsessive thing of like, I don't want to waste time in the game, like regrinding stuff to fix problems that I've had. What about you, Rutskarn? I, okay. Well, I, I start to think about myself saying, Oh, I got really good at this game. And then instantly in my head, uh, some guy crushes a monster energy drink can on his forehead and says, "Yeah, bro. Oh yeah. Let's square. Out. Let's square off, bro. Come on. Let's see what you got." And then, like, I die a minute in. He's just like, <laughs> "Bro, I have a new life goal. I cleared this section without dying by using as my controller." A Jaguar controller plugged into the auxiliary <laughs> port of my computer. So my new life goal is... What the fuck are you doing? My new life goal is to get rich enough that I can hire someone who is just great at everything. Like, everything that you could possibly be slightly good at, uh, Rutzgarn, and then hire him to follow you around and just do that. That is the greatest, the greatest thing I've ever heard. <laughs> just, just to mess with you. So you never feel right. like you do too well. Operation Make Sure Glitch Fails is, at Everything is uh, now in the motion. The, the answer to the question is, I'm not great at video games. I'd I, say, I have never mastered a video game in any reasonable sense. I'd say you've delved a lot further into the mechanics of Mountain Blade than I ever did. Well, yes, but I am aware of the vast gulf that I stand at the edge of. Like, I, I could play the game to, to a reasonable degree of success with the difficulty of the maximum and without, you know, the saving. 
but I cannot be successful. I've yet to, to achieve great success at that difficulty level. I've yet to I, reach the point where I'm taking lots of castles by myself, for example. I don't know if that's even possible. It's that, like, there are a lot of people who uh, do it. Like, Jeez, I can't imagine. I, I know in theory how it is. I know in theory how it is accomplished. Uh, the trick is it, to uh, the the trick is to master the mechanics for our, ordering your guys around. Uh, but the thing about that is that I've only recently acquired a keyboard where the F keys, uh, F1 through F12, are bound to by default without requiring the press of a of, of a sort of a toggle key, uh, actually perform their intended function. Which means that, uh, and, and by the way, for some reason the game rebinds those every time you reboot. So basically, I've I've been powerless to order my men around, which means I've been playing with one arm tied behind my back. Wow, uh, that, I haven't gotten back into it since. That's that's brutal. Not being able to order your men around. I mean, I'm an amateur at that even, but but like I, it's still incredibly useful even if you don't do it well. Yeah, okay, so here's here's about my level with the actual. Uh, Interpersonal mechanics. I could take on, like, if you give me a few minutes to get some equipment together, I could take on a lot of looters by myself. Not not necessarily an arbitrary number, but like fifteen is no problem. Uh, but that's not saying a lot. Not I, super. I think you're I mean, maybe selling on the yourself. Difficulty it is. I think you're selling yourself short, Retzkarn. I would say you are one of the premier Elder Scrolls Battlespire players of all time in that you have finished that, <laughs> that game. may well be. Uh, yes, that may well be. And people have actually asked me, uh, do you think if you did it again, you could play, like, you, you could do an even better job? Uh, and I actually think that the answer might be yes. I suspect that marksmanship is in conjunction with my like sort of immunities and with running around and hopping uh might just be a killer app but I can't confirm that and will never confirm really, that Yeah really uh the the real winning strategy is to fight as few enemies as possible and you can take that to the bank Uh let's see what else we got here this is an interesting one. Everybody brace yourselves for this. Dear Spodcasters, what do you guys think about politics in video games? Are there any examples where this adds a meaningful complexity to the game? And are, the ga and, and are there games where the ham-fistedness of it took you out of the game? Also, what do you guys think about injecting modern-day politics in games that are located in the past, like the Divinity series, Divinity Dragon Commander and Divinity Original Sin, and Dragon Age? Cheers, Adrian. Okay, hang on. Divinity Dragon Commander does not take place in the past. Was that was that part of the question? Um, yes. Divinity Dragon Commander does not take place in the past. Divinity Dragon Commander takes place in the present of an entirely fictional setting. Never conflate the past with a fantasy setting. You you could say it, it is in some way uh, based on social values or uh, cultural premise, which is based on like something from humanity's past. But there's a huge difference from a storytelling perspective in something that, that's attempting to be set in, like, a historical setting and something that is a made-up place that has cultural rules based on made-up premises. It's just such a huge question to ask politics, like, just, politics what? What kind of politics? What issues, right? 
And who's to say, like, that is, is that, ugh, it's just large question. Can we, can we talk about how un, unfair and honestly just, just morally wrong it is for the Empire to spread their propaganda around the galaxy, making it more difficult for me to spread my propaganda? <laughs> is that politics in video games? Did I nail it? I, I don't think that's quite what they were asking. <laughs> um, I mean, in Sorry, broad... can you actually read the question again? I got distracted. Okay, uh, what do you th- guys think about politics in video games? Are there any examples where this adds a meaningful complexity to the game? And are there games where the ham-fistedness of it took you out of the game? Also, what do you guys think about injecting modern-day politics in games that are located in the past? I think we can answer this in broad strokes. Obviously, like, you know, getting too far into this, this is like, we could spend hours talking about this. Uh, but in broad strokes, I tend to take the definition of politics that, like, everyone comes from a certain point of view that is inherently political, and these political biases um, inform everything that they do. Uh, so... Like, it's impossible to have a game that doesn't have politics in it, and or or any kind of work of of human creation that is not informed in some way by the politics of the person or the people who created it. Um, and games that are perceived usually as having more politics than games that have less politics are are usually situations where. Um, the political perspective is not one of the majority or the default ruling class kind of thing, um, you know, uh, are not the, the default culture. Um, and that doesn't, that doesn't make those games have more politics than other games. It just makes their politics more provocative to someone who exists in that space of the default. Or um, apparent, like there yeah. may be just things that are so status quo that you don't realize that they are actually politically informed. Exactly, uh, like, and it's this is true throughout all of of um, human history. Like the the question of like, what do you think about um, games interjecting? modern day politics into like fantasy settings that are based on the past or, or games that are specifically based on the past. And like, that's inescapable. And I, I think maybe not necessarily productive to try to reduce, like you can do a game based on a fantasy setting that is specifically based on a particular past event or past period and try to incorporate those politics, like the politics of the people at the time into it. And that can be interesting, but ultimately like trying to separate the politics of um, the time of a work from the actual work itself is very difficult. Like, for example, um, the history of the decline and fall of the Roman Empire by Edward Gibbon is a really, really interesting, really um, profoundly important historical work. But it is also very much mired in the uh, politics and the time of Edward Gibbon and what he thought about the world and what he saw as important about the world. And, you know, to us in our modern time, uh, comes off as in some ways extremely, uh, 
um, stark in the way it casts, for example, Christian versus pagan as a big deal in the the uh, fall of the Roman Empire in a way that, like, m- in our modern time, we look back and think that's not – we don't see it as as important as he did. Um, I will and, actually and this give is a- also Oh. Go ahead, Alex. Go ahead, Alex. I was going to say, I'm going to give an answer just because, like, a very specific answer because it's kind of fresh in my mind, but I was really rolling my eyes at the um, DLC, the the story update to Final Fantasy XV, where they added in several lines about fake news and I guess tried to make it timely. I mean, there's so many, like, other issues with the story of Final Fantasy XV, but... I there's there was some things there where I was like, oh, that's a little strange. They did that. Yeah. I wonder if that was strictly a localization thing. Like, I wonder if like are people in Japan following that or dealing with similar situations like that to the extent that like throwing that in would be topical for them. Yeah, and I don't have like an answer to that, right? Because there's who knows and it's not like they're very yeah. vocal about that kind of stuff but when it res- when it resonated here there was you know a bunch of people were pretty uh upset about that cuz it's otherwise a very not very political game despite the fact that it deals with politics a whole bunch so here's actually i think i think it addressed a part of the question which is you know if you're informed by your modern political context and you have issues that you want to explore, uh, feel free to explore those, particularly within like a fictional fantastical fantasy setting. Like, feel free to examine those issues in your game, in your art. That's pretty much what it's for. Uh, not saying that's the only thing it's for, but like, you know, that, that, that is a well established role of art. Uh, but trying to directly apply all of the contextual details in your art is obviously dumb. Try to make it relevant to whatever your setting is, whatever your story is. Don't just drop in fake news. That's that's really terrible. I don't know. No it one is going to, to appreciate me that. Like your dogs disagree with you heavily. <laughs> Sorry about that. <laughs> um, this is kind of like this sort of of topic is touching on something that that bothers me about um some of the the commentary I've seen surrounding games recently, which is like um, complaining that games have a certain political agenda that they're pushing, um, which seems strange to me because like everybody has an agenda. You know, if you're going into a game to express your view of the world to other people, like that is an agenda and that agenda is going to have certain, is going to be informed by certain political opinions that you have. So I don't see a problem with game creators having agenda that they want to throw my way. In fact, I like there to be lots of different agendas that I can, uh, you know, examine and experience in the medium of video games, which is, uh, I think, so important because of the way that you can sort of vicariously experience these things as they're happening. Um, you know, Gone Home is an interesting game to me, not simply as a, um, a, a work that examines LGBT issues and specifically like coming out as a, uh, lesbian in the nineties when that was like a big deal. 
um, versus today. But it is interesting to me as a video game that covers that because you are experiencing the sister of this person who comes out as a lesbian in the 90s and unraveling that story for yourself. Um, that That is why I like Gone Home. Um, so, like, I... I want more people to more nakedly push their agenda at me uh, is my response to that sort of criticism. Like, yes, please more um, because, you know, uh, recognizing political biases and, and, and examining critically your own political perspective is, I think a very important thing to do as a person, as a human being and being able to, examine critically the political um, biases and the political viewpoints of other people and determine whether or not those are uh, useful to you and meaningful to you and maybe change your perspective on things is, I think, a really important thing, too, and and very useful and, and something that video games can do in a way that um, other mediums can't. So... Like, what do you think about politics and video games? Like, they're inseparable and also useful to the medium, is my answer to this question. Certainly, they can be done in in ways that are, are sort of way too on the nose and make you just cringe. But ultimately, I think the the ability that video games have to allow us to see and experience vicariously the, the political biases and viewpoints of other people is... Uh, a really interesting aspect of the medium that is maybe not talked about enough. And ultimately they don't have to be games you have to play personally if you're not interested. And and again, what a yeah. thing to live in a world where you think that games are only fun and meanwhile that same game that you think is fun may be very political to somebody else. I notice Chris hasn't said anything. I'm good. <laughs> <laughs> See, this question was very open-ended, so I think we're all sort of rejecting the soapboxes that we wanted to get on into it a little bit. Um, I know I am. Well, and these questions just keep popping up year after year, and people there's always this sort of, like, angry bent on it, not saying that this question asker is angry or frustrated or whatever, but there's always this kind of, like, undertone of, like, oh, I don't want any politics in my games or they're doing it wrong, or, you know, what have you. And, you know, to be clear, we say that, like, yeah, people say stuff like all games are political, and I think that that's true in kind of a limited sense. It's certainly true in the sense of, you know, games that deal with characters and storylines and social issues uh, contain elements of a person's perspective, which can be discussed and examined, uh, and it can be part of a larger conversation. It doesn't necessarily mean that this person, you could, we could tell from this thing that this person believes that, but it could be part of a larger conversation about the art form and the kinds of art that get produced. Uh, there's not a lot of nutritional content if you're trying to discuss the political meaning of Tetris. Uh, I mean, you can describe the, the context in which the game was produced. If you really want to get into the, the yeah. kind of, if, if you really want to find a way to discuss this in kind of an academic sense, but otherwise, uh, discussing the mechanics and their effect, on, the artistic discussion of that is really limited to a critical lens that focuses on the impact of the mechanics on your emotions uh, and on sort of your engagement with them. 
I think the like the I'm not sure I'd call it overreach, but the the sort of attempts to to discuss games like Tetris in a a very political fashion, like what are the politics of Tetris, is is possibly what gives this kind of discussion in a broader like popular cultural context um, sort of a bad rap because it does kind of seem very pedantic at some point that like you're talking about the politics of a game where you drop blocks to clear lines. Um, but I don't think that in itself like means that you should abandon the idea of engaging with politics and games altogether. Yeah. I, I guess I want to get one last point in here as a general thing. Uh, and again, this isn't really, I, I don't know if you could even argue that this is response to what the questioner meant, or if this is just something that I want to talk about that, that your dog doesn't dog says, no, bite the dogs down. <laughs> <laughs> Fuck you. Um, okay. Apparently that conversation they were having with the dog across the street is now over. You know, I, I, I do think that there's a tendency to, I mean, okay, so certainly if you're making a game about, like, that's that's clearly based on, like, medieval English culture uh, of, like, peasant folk, and then you drop in fake news, that's probably stupid. That is an example of taking a political issue that is not particularly applicable or appropriate to the situation, unless you're being really clever about it it's an uh, and stressing it, but... Yeah, it's an anachronism, but it's it's actually I think people tend th there's a very clear effect uh, when you compare historical works produced within a cultural context to historical works produced about that cultural context hundreds of years later that actually runs in the opposite direction of what people might expect, uh, where often like people sort of assume that like the broad differences. Uh, and how we view certain social groups now and how the, the it, people would have viewed them uh, in the past, like where that's kind of exaggerated and overgeneralized. Like, here's an example. Um, I've actually, you know, I, I read, I've read a lot of noir books and sort of research for a project I was working on. Uh, and I didn't particularly like draw these noir books uh, from any like list or source. I just sort of picked them up any I could from libraries or, you know, a lot of them weren't very good. You know, movies from Netflix uh, that didn't have high star ratings exactly. Uh, and I've also... So so a lot of these noir works were from the 40s and the 50s, which is when kind of the, the boom happened. Some of them from the 30s. Uh, whereas I would also then read selections of books and watch movies and play, you know, games, one game in particular... Uh, that were set in that era, but they were made much more recently, the 90s, the 2000s, the 2010s. And one thing I noticed, there was a really strong contrast between these works. Uh, universally, like if you're talking about which of these works featured sort of female characters prominently, uh, almost all the time in kind of roles of being, you know... Uh, sort of being uh, involved in, like, the intrigue or being actually, you know, criminals themselves, criminal masterminds, uh, of sort of having their own agendas and being really big parts of the narrative and kind of having interesting, clever things to say. Uh, universally, that was happening in the books written in the 30s, 40s, and 50s, or happening in the, those movies. 
you know, like, you know, your, your, your Philip Marlowe novels, you know, your White Heats, your Maltese Falcons, uh, were featuring all these kinds of characters. And the ones produced, like, after 1990 tended to be very male-focused. Including L.A. Noir, which has a huge plot point turning on the idea that Cole Phelps is attracted to this femme fatale and leaves his wife, and neither of them are really characters. Yeah, uh, I, I, and if I can like go back and clarify something that I said because I'm not sure I, I got my point across. But when I was talking about like Gibbon and like the the usefulness of trying to separate politics from like what Gibbon was saying, like I don't mean like understanding Gibbon's politics is not important. What I mean is that like it's impossible to separate Gibbon from his own political viewpoints, and it's impossible to separate his work from the viewpoints of the politics that he had. So, like, it's the useful way to look at it is, like, understand that Gibbon was writing to an audience that literally no longer exists. They're all dead. Uh, And he was writing in a time with viewpoints that is different from ours, and keep that in mind when reading his, his work. And read his work not only as a way to learn more about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire, but also about the way people at the time thought about the decline and fall of the Roman Empire and, and, and what they thought about things like Christianity versus paganism and, and, and stuff like that. Um, and that's a really like that's the way that I view historical commentaries from eras before now and, and historical commentaries from eras today. Like we do the same thing. You know, we are much more likely to to view things from a feminist perspective than people were even fifty, hundred years ago. Um and that informs right. a lot of what we think about the world. Right. But when you you, you you approach this perspective of okay, I'm writing works in the forties and fifties, so I need to approach this the way a story about the forties and fifties might be told, you know, with the kinds of characters right. that this kind of society would allow to exist you overgeneralize and you, you approach this from the perspective, okay, well, like, you know, in this kind of setting, the only characters who have anything interesting to do are the men. Yeah. Uh, you know, it would be anachronistic to have a, a female crime boss like White Heat basically has, except that was made in that year. There's definitely a danger of, like, overgeneralizing the, the sort of tropes of an era, the, the viewpoints of an era, and only going with the ones that would have been, like, the most absolute mainstream. Yeah, that's definitely uh, something to be aware of and look out for. Um, Let's do a couple more. I mean, you, you want to do we've a been going for more? almost three we've hours. We've been going for two and a half hours, Josh. Have we really been going for two and a half yes. hours? <laughs> like, we are, we are yeah. so far beyond done. All right. Um, in that case, uh, <laughs> by popular vote, this podcast has been ended. Uh, <laughs> I think we did some good here today. We started a flame war in the comments section. Yep, several probably. We talked about I, video games. I was the only one who didn't like Guardians of the Galaxy, and I'm going to regret that when I start reading the comments of this video. I'm sure there are other people who didn't like Guardians of the Galaxy, too. I mean... Honestly, I didn't dislike it. It just felt uh I, I don't know, it wasn't it wasn't as charming as I wanted it to be. I never did say that I didn't like it. Uh remember if you'd like us to answer questions, you can write into the spoiler Josh's warning face. show write into spoilerwarningshow at gmail dot com. Uh. And we will catch you next time where Glitch will not say to click on my face. Say goodbye everybody. 
Goodbye. Bye, everybody. The birds Bye. had their fling. You heard the flowers sing. Tiki's play the drums. Hear them do the chant.